If you want to know how to create like the grades, let's break it down. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Really looking forward to this conversation today. Um, you're in the process of finalizing your memoir, Walking with Giants, um, a memoir on a four-decade career working with literal industry giants, and arguably you're one of them. The process must have been quite personal. Can you tell me a little bit about like what it's been like going back over your own life and reflecting on that and then writing about it. I'd love to hear what that's been like. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a pretty humble guy, almost to a fault. So when I was young, I developed a mentor-protege relationship with a, with a guy who was like a highly respected arranger, trombone player, a guy named Bill, Billy Byers, Broadway arranger. And he took me under his wing and I ended up working with him as a peer for 15 years. And so he was about 20 years older than I was. I developed relationships, not only with his clients, people like Shirley MacLaine and Julie Andrews and all of those kinds of people. I got to know the musicians. So the kind of the impetus of this book was to say, I am a conduit, experiential conduit to the previous generation. My personal experience is working with these amazing people as a peer, as a very young guy, almost all of them are gone now. The other side of the part of this is as a young musician, at that time in the 70s and into the 80s, to gain success in the music industry, you had to run a gauntlet, but it was very well defined. And on the job training was kind of part of the deal. You know, you go out on the road and you get your, your act together and then you're ready to deal with the challenges of dealing in Hollywood or film or what, whatever it is that you're going to be doing. In today's world, it's next to impossible to find an opportunity to provide that experiential learning situation. There's just no access to it because the world has changed to where, you know, like we're <laughs> talking to you through a, a, a phone online in real time and you're probably four or 5,000 miles away from me. 50 years ago, that technology did not exist. So everything is kind of pushed into the home, isolated. Think about this, every laptop, you know, MacBook Pro has GarageBand. That means that there's 1.5 billion home studios. The whole dynamic has changed. So the impetus behind the book was to say, what is missing from, or ask the question, what is missing from this new environment. And, and it's kind of an outgrowth of, of teaching. When I was teaching at the University of Miami, I discovered that, that my students were not so much interested in craft and technique. They were more interested in what was the life like? What did it feel like? What was it like being in that situation? You know, I've never been shy about sharing myself with others. If I were to outline my career and the challenges that I faced and the shifts and changes along the way that I had to adapt to, if I could share that process with people, it could give them hope and confidence that, well, gee, if he could do it, I could do it now that I understand what the deal is, as opposed to being one step removed. Tell me a bit about the Billy Byers relationship. Like, how did that influence who you've even become? Oh, my God. I, I would not have had the life that I had without him, pure and simple. I met him when I was 17 years old at a clinic that he was teaching in Las Vegas. I was living in Ogden, Utah at the time. My family was. So I go to this clinic and I see this guy 
sitting in the front of this room. It was like kind of like a stadium seating uh, like classroom. And he's sitting down in the front and you have to remember, you know, the context of this is my dad was a rocket scientist, truly a rocket scientist. He built rocket engines. So, you know, my home life was basically, you know, buzz cuts, short sleeve dress shirts and pocket protector. That's the world that I came from. But now I'm 17 years old and I walk into this room and I see this guy, he's wearing a little John Lennon sunglasses, holding his cigarette like this. And he had a ponytail down the middle of his back. And it's like, oh my God, what in the world is this all about? Then he picked up his trombone. Distinctly remember somebody had written a lead trumpet part. For the non-musician, trombone basically plays an octave lower than the trumpet. So there's this screaming high trumpet part written out on the board, right? That, you know, like up an octave above the staff that would be a challenge for most trumpet players. And he picks up his trombone and he plays it on the trombone. I mean, he's, it's like, you know, and my mind is completely blown. So I was placed in his class. I had no idea what he was talking about. I took about the notes of about two inches thick and then went, spent the next six months trying to understand what it was he was talking about. And I went back and did the clinic the next year. And he said, well, give me a call when you get to town, we'll hang out. I was like terrified, you know, it's like, how do I even make that phone call? So as it turns out, he had a legendary Sunday hang. It was all about the other guys in the band. So whenever musicians would come into town from the road visiting, they'd all go out to his place on Sunday afternoons and have a barbecue and drink and hang out and do, you know, do that whole, whole vibe. Well, I ended up getting in on the tail end of that. So I was depressed living away from home for the first time. And I ended up eating Sunday dinner with his family for the next two years. After we had dinner, the kids, the little kids would go to bed and then we put on headphones and listen to records and drink wine. And that was my education. So he taught me as much how to hang out as he did about music. That's how the relationship started. And then as time progressed, he was really, really busy. And he would bring me along and ask, you know, dole out small little assignments to me along the way. Tell me a bit about this. I wonder if you can recall it. The score from The Sandpiper, Johnny Mandel, Billy may or may not have had a score that you did and gave it to Johnny. Johnny Mandel, like a legendary composer, songwriter, and Billy were lifelong friends. They actually were staff arrangers on your show of shows with Sid Caesar in the early 50s. For people who don't know what that show was all about, the writer's room was Woody Allen, Neil Simon, all these people, Carl Reiner was another one, right? So all these, like, like these guys, like went on to have these amazing careers after this. Billy had played, one of the records we listened to was the score to the Sandpiper, which is the shadow of your smile. I listened to this and I completely wigged out. Oh my God, you know, this is the shit. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm hearing in my head. And I ended up wearing out a cassette tape. It ended up breaking because I listened to it so often. I was playing in a, a big band at LA City College, uh, playing piano. And I ended up taking all of what I had absorbed from listening to this score for so long and try to approximate that, to imitate it. In my own composition, part of what I would do is if I wrote something, I would take it out and have Billy take a look at it and give me a critique, right? So one Sunday I bring him, I bring out this, this chart and it's written in manuscript paper. It was not unheard of for Johnny to just show up at Billy's front door because they were neighbors. Billy looked at it and then he's, oh, oh gee, that looks, looks great. great. And then we're, we're hanging out and all of a sudden Johnny walks in the door and without saying anything else, 
Billy handed my score to Johnny. And he says, here, take a look at this. The standard for people in that role would be was to hear with your eyes, see with your ears, meaning look at a piece of music and be able to hear it in your head or hear a piece of music and then be able to visualize what it looked like notate. So he hands my score to Johnny and Johnny lays down on the couch and he's got his head on, the, on, on a pillow and his feet up and he holds the score up above his head and he's like reading through it. All the while, I'm like sweating bullets. Here my idol is looking at a work that I've created to approximate what he does. So he gets to the end of it and he puts the score down and he says, looks like something I would have liked to have written. That's amazing. What role does mentorship play in your life now? Fast forward that experience, like how do you think about mentorship? Well, you know, my experience is fairly unique, not to say that mentorship is unique. You know, if you look at it from a historical perspective, how were trades and crafts passed along before organized education, master apprentice. And, and that's the way people, is a way that people learn. Experience with a guy looking over your shoulder. All of what I've been given through all these remarkable people that I've known and worked with, like I say, there's no opportunity to get that on-the-job training as there once was. The other part about this is I don't feel possessive about what I know. The reality is that the music that I write is, is not really mine. It comes from someplace else. So how in the world could I even begin to feel like I own it? You know, it's just something that's there that I tap into and, and can and access. And you're not possessive about any ideas. Like you've had a blog, you've got courses. You Oh, no, 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 no. I'm absolutely fearless about it because why limit yourself? You know, it's just like the venue, the, the focus shifts, but the message is still the same, which is to say, let me expose you to what I've learned and then you take what's valuable for you and, and integrate it as you see fit to your work, which then perpetuates, it's just kind of continues the thread. Why do you do it? From the music to the ideas, like the blog, so many insights, why? Why do you continue to create and share these ideas all for the world to, to see? Well, I don't know if I have an, an answer for you, but I can, I can kind of characterize it by someone who once told me, you didn't choose music, music chose you. From a musical side of things, it's such a huge part of who I am. I've just learned through trial and error and self-destructive behavior that it's more powerful than me. Because of that, I've made peace with that concept that this is just who I am. I'm much better off just going with it rather than trying to control it. You know, it's like if you have a story to tell, if you have a, something that you feel passionate about, then the venue, the focus is kind of irrelevant. You know, you know, it's like I had an experience when my mother passed away, a Satari experience that shifted the, the direction of my life completely. It was such a powerful event for me that I felt compelled to share that story, right? I just had to get all that energy. Now, you know, the reality is that I'm very empathetic and I'm kind of like a sponge to all of that energy that around me, you know, positive and or negative. Being creative is a way to expunge that energy because if I don't, it just eats me up alive. And I can't be where I want to be, which is in the process of making stuff. I made an album of solo piano music about that experience, which taught me how to be present in the moment with no thought and just allow it to 
to express itself however it is without having any sort of of ego attached to it and then about two years later i realized three years later i was i wasn't done telling that story i hadn't finished getting this story out of myself with the hope that it would affect somebody else in a positive way i wrote a one-act play and I produced it and I directed it about that experience. And I didn't, I didn't have any fear about it because, you know, it's like, what is it? Uh, failure is just another learning opportunity. So if in fact it failed, that's an expectation not met. It doesn't necessarily have any sort of judgment. The only judgment that's attached to it is whatever you choose it to be. You know, so if you choose it to have an expectation that if the project succeeds, then I'll be a success. I'll be a whole person. If it fails, you're like in the toilet. If you walk into it saying, this is what I'm trying to do. Let's see what the outcome will be. Then you can judge the, the success or failure of the expectation that you had set, set from a completely different perspective. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with your customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's kind of like trying to remember the name of the guy that you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron? Was it Don? Was it John or Sean? Who knows, right? It's like that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution program, at least. It brings service and success together in one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that helps handle frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps your reps anticipate customers' needs. And a full 360 view of every customer so you can go to market and your go-to-market team can have a pulse on the accounts before you try to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale, support, drive retention, and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service, happier customers at every single stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more with your customers today. Is this the same mentality that you would have had when you first met Billy? You have to remember that I was 20 years old when I did my first network TV arrangement. I was a baby and I had a very challenging for me dysfunctional family situation. They didn't know what to do with an artist. So there was this big disconnect. For me, combining this access and this kind of meteoric rise in the business, I was so desperate to do the work because it protected me from the dysfunctional childhood. So when I met Billy, it was like, oh my God, this is going to be a ticket to me being able to, to survive all of this internal struggle and pain that I was feeling because of my childhood. And I was, you know, I had never failed at anything before, right? So everything was, everything had worked out. Then I got hired to be Tom Jones, musical director. I was 23 years old and they flew me up to Quebec. This is, this is like hard to imagine, but they had sent me a tape of the show, flew me up to Quebec to join this tour to replace his his musical director. There was two shows that night. I watched the first show now and musical director, Johnny Spence, he said, well, you ready? And I said, yeah, I think so. So I went into his dressing room and I, and I went through, tried to prep for 
you know, being the, the leader of this show, right? And I walked out and it was flawless. And it scared the crap out of everybody. Who is this kid? They could not really accept me because it triggered them in all their insecurities and all this craziness. Then three days later, Johnny died. And he was the glue that held this whole thing together. The wheels fell off. And I felt like obligated to finish the tour and amidst this chaos. You know, I mean, it was, it was really bad. I mean, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was really, really bad when he passed away. So there's all that grief associated with his passing that manifested itself in belligerent behavior, in alcoholism, in drug abuse, and all of that kind of insanity, right? We're doing one-nighters, mind you. I'm 23. And I was, you know, emotionally, I was just not there. Musically, it was not an issue. Musically, it was like, ah, no problem. But the emotional aspect of being in that role and the challenges from a managerial leadership role, I was just not prepared to deal with. So I ended up developing a bleeding ulcer and lost two pints of blood and ended up leaving the tour, uh, being admitted to a hospital in Terre Haute, Indiana, spent a week in the hospital and never spoke to them again. They just left. That kind of shaped going forward to the extent of where I really realized I had to take care of myself. When you're in the hospital, did they uh, encourage you to shake it off and come back? No. The one confidant that I had on the tour was a woman named Jeannie King, who was part of the Blossom singing group, who did all the Phil Spector records in the 60s. And I just went to her at four o'clock in the morning and says, I can't go on because I felt like I had a knife from my sternum to my groin. So, so she took me to the hospital and they admitted me and she actually went back to the hotel and got my luggage and brought my luggage to the hospital. So the next morning, manager called me up and he says, hey, you're going to be able to make the show tonight? And I've got an IV in one arm and blood going in the other arm. And I said, gee, I really don't think so. All right. And he hangs up the phone. And that was the last I ever heard. So, you know, it's a, it's a brutal business. So when you're, you're 23 and you're going through that, like what's in your mental at that point, you just were arguably to everyone else. It's like, oh, you've got your own with Tom Jones. There was that, but, but I didn't do much of anything for the next six months is trying to absorb the experience and how do I fit in what happened? What, what was I responsible for? What was I not responsible for? To get back to your original question, that experience subsequently happened twice. In 1986, I got an Academy Award nomination from my work on The Color Purple. I won another Emmy Award and I had a, a hit album on jazz radio and I got divorced and I instantly became a single parent. And so, so I realized that for my own survival, I needed to focus on being a parent rather than a career. So that was the next evolution of survival as it relates to uh, a career in personal health and mental health and all the rest of it. The last experience was, you know, kind of a carryover. I decided to leave the band that I was in and, and do a solo record. Funded it myself. I put a great band together and I had some partners trying to get me a record deal. The record comes out. Two weeks after it's released, it's in the top 20 uh, airplay. And my partner got into an, uh, a spat with, with the record company and the record company pulled all their promotional support. So the album failed. It, it just, it just, it just disappeared. Right. And that was, you know, I had, to, I had to accept the fact that the failure had nothing to do with me, that it was completely out of my control. 
And that pushed me into going into therapy. The divorce concurrent with the failure of this project pushed me to say what I had been doing was not no longer working. And if I wanted to survive in this, in this case, I support and care for my son, I had to change to be able to accommodate that. That's fascinating. Like, so for someone who's listening, like there's a lot of people who still, even today, like therapy's kind of like, oh, there's still the stigma. Someone right. who's trying and has achieved a lot. You're sitting on top of the world. You just win, you're winning awards, working on color purple in all eyes. Perfect. Life is great. Other people listening to this might be in a similar situation. They're getting all the awards. They're doing everything right. The outside perspective is everything is great. But internally, they're struggling. They're going through it. What would be your advice to those people who's balancing the ego with the reality and resisting the idea of even getting help? Such a great question. I'm always reminded of something that Quincy Jones has said, and I'll paraphrase this, my self-worth is not dependent upon your justification of me. So to kind of drill down into that is, is the fact that what I've learned is that my identity as a human being has very little to do with the work that I do. Who I am as a person is separate from what it is that I do. It's inextricably linked, but having that distinction or creating that distinction allows you to be able to look at the work from a third party perspective. It's you're not looking for the work to prop you up and to make you whole. So to answer your question, what would I suggest is use that as a mantra to say, I am a whole person. I have a family, I have friends uh, or not friends or whatever, whatever your situation may be, who you are as a person and how you feed your soul has nothing to do with external reward. That way you, now you have a buffer and you can, you can clarify what you're responsible for and what you're not responsible for. This is a lesson that, you know, it's, it's been a struggle for me to get to this level of understanding. Now, the whole thing about mental health is, you know, stigma is a brand. I mean, that's where the word is derived from. It's a brand. It's a brand. In this case, this brand or stigma about mental health is derived from ignorance. It's ignorance and not understanding, as well as in this country, the healthcare system is so distorted you know we can talk about the about the effectiveness you know you know that's a different issue that's like an execution sort of thing if you think about it the healthcare industry profits by treating symptoms not by curing people it's it's set up as a profit generator as opposed to creating wellness which is 180 degrees from asian medicine which they pay the doctor every week so they don't get sick. The outgrowth of that is that we are culturally taught that we go to a doctor to get fixed. Like you go to a body shop or to a mechanic to put in a new muffler. That's the mindset behind the healthcare industry that we have adopted. And when you talk about, you can talk about white coat syndrome, you know, the, the, the guy in the white coat, he knows all, right? 
So I have no voice in this. I am, I am a, a, a non-participant in this process. Using the term mental health perpetuates by uh, the stigma of, of it being something bad because it's derived from the cultural aspect of the healthcare system that we live with on a day-to-day -day basis. Healthcare, oh, I gotta go fix, call a doctor. I mean, this is just astonishing to me. 40% of the people who are treated with uh, uh, pharmacology, you know, like antidepressive medication or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is talk therapy for, for the most part, you know, broader than that, 40% of those people, it's ineffective. 40%, it doesn't work, right? So now you have all this fear and anxiety and all the rest of this, and it, as a result of the pandemic, we've got more than 60 million people who are suffering in this country who have no place to turn. The demand for services far outstrips the supply. So now we're in this, this quagmire, where do we go, what do we do? You know, it's kind of like an extension of my own personal growth, but for, for the last two and a half years, my focus has been to create a, a self-care method for people to alleviate, be able to manage their mental health organically uh, to alleviate the onset of symptoms. That is exactly what the Missing Link Project is. It's, there's, a, there's two aspects of it. There's what I call an outreach program, and there's a concert. Now, the concert was designed to, how do I get people to go to the concert hall? That was where it started. And so I created a, a I, I couldn't find anybody to collaborate with me who understood what I was talking about. So I ended up writing a 75-page script with five characters, two, two families that that it starts following a, a school shooting where uh, one of the families loses a teenage son, you know, a, a, a black woman and, and, a, and the younger brother. Is, that's one family. And, and she, the, the uh, black woman, Vanessa, is a, uh, a widower. Or widow, she, you know. So the older brother was the father figure in the household. So, so the, so the younger brother is like, you know, he's, the, he's like, like, wigging out completely. And this, the other family is, is a white girl and a couple. The, the dad is a business owner who has PTSD from military service, and an enabler, as a wife. And the, the, the girl and the boy have a relationship unbeknownst to the parents. Right. All right. So that's where this story starts. It goes and then the pandemic hits and then the wheel and then it goes through this whole character development. Basically, the the mission of this work is to bring people together in the concert hall as a community engagement vehicle to break down the walls and educate uh, communities about the hidden effects of trauma so that we can create a dialogue and connect people one to another. The outreach program is designed to use music, movement, and uh, breathing to provide, this is kind of a technical term, you know, getting in the weeds, but provide alternative sensory data to the brain to counteract PTSD or trauma or anxiety by, by having a a go-to device to mitigate the fight-flight response, which is instinctive, that you don't have conscious control over.
right? So it's, in essence, it's, it's, it's involved and there's all sorts of neuroscience and, uh, to, to back up why this works. But, but the point here is, is to give people a coping skill and use the power of music as a healing mechanism as opposed to an entertainment or an anecdotal resource you know uh, or something that you unconsciously gravitate towards with you don't that you don't understand and in many ways it's kind of also rooted in some of the stuff you were talking about around your childhood like you use the work to be like your escape from a, a rough childhood oh yeah 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 it's, it's it's all connected and so you know when i left the university of miami in 2018 well a year before that i was terrorized by uh, a boss in a narcissistic rage that to the extent that I, I felt my life was threatened. And I ended up developing PTSD as a result. And I've been in, in I had used this project to turn pain into pleasure, or purpose rather, but I've also done EMDR therapy as a way for me to deal with my PTSD. So that was like the impetus. And I realized when I actually left that job, my biggest question was, how do I want to spend my time? You know, it's like, okay, I got, I'm 64 years old. I got X number of years left. What's most important to me in terms of spending my time? When I discovered that, I realized that I, that my job as a film composer was to manipulate people's emotions using music to support whatever the story is being told. I realized that I could use my musical storytelling skill to express the hidden emotional lives of trauma sufferers using story and music to break down that stigma, that wall of misunderstanding between people who don't suffer and those who are loath to express it. So that's how this whole thing started. And, and so, you know, listen, I, I jokingly say I, I carry around a big sack of credits. You know, it just kind of trails after me. There's not much I can do about it. The question that I asked about when, when, I, when I started thinking, how do I want to spend my time? Well, number one, is I wanted to be around people. I wanted to work with live musicians again. But uh, more importantly, it's like I want to make an impact. You know, it's like, what can I do? using my particular skills and experience to create a positive impact. And it's pretty selfish at the end of the day. I've got two adorable grandchildren. They're six and three. I look at them and their lives and I see what's coming with AI and all the rest of that. And I think, what can I do to help the world that they will inherit? What do you think is coming to for that generation in the next wave, like when you think of the original types of experiences that you would have had with like Billy, example. Fast forward to today, AI is starting to take off. A lot of music is being developed even with AI. Like what are you seeing in as the outcome of all of this technology and what the future might hold? Well, first and foremost, selling a piece of plastic or a stream is, an, is the tail end of the 20th century marketing model. Expecting that you can create a career uh, selling a piece of plastic as that being the primary uh, value that you're creating, it's a non-starter. So for the last 15, almost 20 years, my question I've been asking is, how do you change the value proposition, right? Into something that's meaningful and relevant 
to an audience. And there is no specific answer for that, but from a business perspective, that's the question you have to ask. What is the value that you're creating? It's not just look at me, look at me, look at me. Who cares? You know, we're, we're, we're saturated with media. So you have to understand yourself to know what is it that you do that nobody else does. And, do, and then ask yourself the question, does that, what value does that create for someone else? When you think about like the process of composing or even like bringing to life one of those amazing scores, and now people being able to say, hey, I need a score AI, create me something. What do you think is going to happen long-term to the Well, I think my feeling is, is that people will get bored. The listeners or the- The listeners are going to get bored. And that, that, that comes in, you know, it touches on a much broader issue. There's a, a great author, Yuval Harari, who uh, wrote two books and he does a lot of speaking, but uh, Homo sapiens and Homo Deus. Now, Homo, if you've not read Homo Deus, Homo Deus is, is the subtitle is A Brief History of Tomorrow. And basically, he makes a pretty darn compelling argument that the age of enlightenment is dying. And that in, in layman's terms, in another 20 years, we'll all be the Borg. You know, we'll all be, you know, uh, cyborgs with nano, nanotechnology embedded in our bodies, which will extend lifespan, but it will forever change what it means to be human. You know, and I had a, there's a, my friend Robert Tur- Tursek has a great podcast called uh, The Futurists. And he had an AI researcher come in and the interviewer, uh, Monica Anderson is her name. And basically what she was saying is that, you know, human knowledge is evolutionary. AI knowledge is designed. It's not the same. It's not the same thing. So if you take all of those factors together, the machine learning and all the rest of the AI and, and, and uh, nanobots and technology, you know, if you follow uh, singularity you know we're, we're heading to a singularity which we're probably already in so my question with all of that stuff is is what is going to be the tool or the vehicle that continues to connect us as human beings right because if you just you know in, in the early 2000s you went know, smartphone technology was introduced we all just kind of followed along blindly Right. And the social media, we followed along blindly. We didn't really know what the consequence was. So so now with that experience, you know, there's a choice to be made. You know, I see this as like a once in human history event where we have the ability and the opportunity to define what we want humanism to be. Remarkable. You know, so it's, if you look at it from those stakes, we can either drift along and let let technology take over, or we can say, not necessarily put the brakes on and regulate, but to say, this is our intent of what we want this to be, then they can, we can actually define the world that we want to live in and use the technology as a support to that. Now, now back to the AI and making music and, and audiences getting bored. I, I th- think that discernment between deep fake and real is going to become a valuable commodity. So what what are the factors that that you can determine? Is it glitz and glamour? Is it messaging? Is it what is it about you that reaches you? Now it's not to say that AI can't get there eventually, but to say that 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 being a, aware enough of yourself to be able to say is that something that's kind of like 
like a, a 60 minute ad on network TV, or is that something that really speaks to me is going to be a skill an awareness that needs to be supported and nurtured to be able to be in control as much as we can about what the human experience will be. Now, I think that music is the key to this because music has the power, I call it a superpower now, because it has the ability to change brain chemistry. It has the ability to change change uh, uh, physiology. And it has the, the ability to counteract negativity. Well, all of that, but more importantly for the individual, I think about this, it's, it's, there's all sorts of data that supports the, the concept, but Let's say you had a significant experience, positive and or negative. Like my parents used to say, say when they were dating, they would go to a dance, right? And, and the band would start playing a song and then they falling in love and, and, and they, they called, they're playing our song because they attach that song to that memory of that experience. That indicates that if you are aware of the, what, how that works, then you can use our song to recreate that positive emotional experience of the past. That's how powerful music is. And, it, and it's irrespective of genre. It, it, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's hip hop, if it's, it's Mozart, it really doesn't matter. It's about how the individual relates or it has experienced that piece of music in the past. When you think of some of the music that you've been involved with or even brought to life, have you developed one that stands out to you as a score that you go back to and actually still to this day point at as being like one of your like greatest things that you brought to life? And I know you mentioned early on that you'd like to be humble, but I'd love for you to just go back into time a little bit. Is there one that stands out? Well, well, yes, but, but let me just preface this by saying I'm a jazz musician by training which means I'm always looking to the next bar. I, I, ne I never really look back much. But that being said, this record I did uh, after my mother's passing, it's called Songs from the Heart. It's on Spotify. The experience behind it was I, I was my mother's emotional support for the last 18 months of her life. And it was a remarkable experience. We got to know each other as people, as opposed to parent and child. About four o'clock in the morning, I set up her hospital bed next to her piano, put pictures of her grandkids on the piano. She was, she was an amazing gardener. She could see out into her, her yard and see all of her plants. And I ended up playing for her all day. She had lost consciousness. And I played the piano for her for hours and hours and hours. And about four o'clock in the morning, uh, the hospice nurse said that she had passed away. I came downstairs and I, I kissed her on the forehead. I'd never seen a corpse before, you know, so that was a new experience. I called my brother and I walked out into her backyard. So I'm sitting on this bench, looking in at the bed, looking at all the people gathered around the bed. And, I'm, and it's five o'clock, it's pre-dawn, right? It's in the darkness. And I sit down and I just say to myself, okay, I knew this day would eventually get here. What's next? And all of a sudden, I became hypersensitive to everything around me. Started with a, a hearing a ra raccoon in, in bushes. And it was like, it sounded like it was 120 dB. I mean, it was just like this, like this, 
you know, this awareness of all this. Then, then I was sitting underneath the sycamore tree and the, just this gentle breeze through this tree was just like the most amazing thing I'd ever experienced at all. All the while feeling blanketed with the, a feeling of comfort and love, right? Then it was springtime and this, now the sun starts to come up while I'm like in this state and the birds started to sing. As dawn was breaking, you know, the world was waking up. And in that moment, I just became overwhelmed with the beauty in nature and the abundance of life on this planet. And it just like, it was life changing, this particular experience. So that's the backstory to this piece of music. About a year later, self-publishing was all the rage, like in 2006. So, so I'm like investigating, well, how do I break an artist online and all those kinds of questions, you know, what, what is social networking anyway, you know? And, and I sat down at the piano and I started to play and this song came out and I felt exactly the same way that I felt sitting in my mother's yard at five o'clock in the morning you know, an hour after she passed away. And I thought, wow, that's different to clarify. You're writing orchestral music, you know, you got a 17, 11 by 17 inch piece of paper. Then you're, you're, you're envisioning, you know, 80 people sitting on a stage and you have to figure out what they have to do. It's a lot of work. It's not necessarily a spontaneous kind of creation, right? I mean, it takes a long time to put those notes on the paper. So, so it's very intellectual. It's not like, it's not an improvisation, right? So I said, this is wild. So I went and I played it again. And I said, this is pretty special. This feels different because I didn't have that intellectual craftsman's hat on, right? Right? I, I was just in this state of presence, right? Presence awareness or a state of flow if you're uh, an athlete. So I ended up making, doing 14 songs. I learned how to access that state through that experience about how to place. Now, you know, Oprah uh, talks about hanging out with Tina Turner and they're in the, they're in the audience, you know, while they're doing the sound check and she's just, you know, like one of the, one of the guys and she's, Oh, I got to go sing. And by the time that she got to the microphone, she became Tina Turner. He was a different person. Okay, so that's kind of like like an ex, you know uh, an example of of this. So I made this record. I released it. I put it up on MySpace. In thirty days, I had seven thousand MySpace friends and over seven hundred comments of how this music of people it's connected with people who are in life transition experiences. You know, you know, I've done a lot of stuff you know, and, and I've had a lot of amazing experiences, but, but I have to say that has probably has been at least what I can quantify, you know, it's a lot of the stuff that I've worked on. It leaves the desk and I don't think about it anymore. Primarily I'm not involved and also because I'm looking for the next job, but yeah, it's called songs from the heart. And this first song that I played is called pure. And I actually gave a copy while I was making it to a neighbor who was saying that her dad was going through stage for prostate cancer. 
So I said, here, let me, let me go get you a CD. So I give her like a home burn CD and said, give this to your dad. He might find it helpful. She saw me out in the yard about a, a month later and she was across the street and she made a point to cross the street to talk to me. And she said, my father wanted me to use these words. He says, he said, your music resonates with me. I listened to it every night while I, while I was going through chemotherapy. And he, she said that he was, he had just gotten his, his, uh, review at post chemo and he was cancer free. So it's like, not to say that this is a cure for cancer, but, 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 but just to say that for anyone who creates art, you know, my definition of art is to provoke a response. It's not necessarily to be rich or famous. It's, it's the artist expresses it because they don't have no choice. They have to get it out of there. You know, Sinead O'Connor is a huge example of that. And the, the grief that she endured for doing that was so unfounded, right? But, but nonetheless, is, is connect with that place that's real for you that has that authentic intent and you will find that people will resonate to it differently than if you're trying to please something outside of yourself. It's interesting. You mentioned earlier, like that everywhere you go with you, you're carrying this bag of credentials and this bag of like awards and all of this stuff. But it often like you're, what I'm hearing is like, you're pursuing that impact on the people. Some people are going to listen to this and they're like, I want the awards. And then other people are going to listen. They're going to say, I really just want the impact. What would be your advice to both of those people? Let's, let's talk about searching for awards. You know, you know, clamoring for awards is kind of a double-edged sword in the sense that it can be a great motivator to spur you into action. I want to go do this because I want this outcome. There's nothing wrong with using that as a, a generator of, of your motivation. But having been on the other side of that, the award is just a reflection of somebody else's opinion. It has nothing to do with the work per se. It's somebody else's opinion about that work. And you have no control over that. So if you're, you know, all well and good, you want to go win a zillion awards, that's, that's great. It's not going to make you a better person. It's not going to guarantee career success. It's just a, a marker on your journey. So if, if, if you're going to go out and say, I'm, I really, this motivates me to go take action, just keep that in mind. It's not going to flip your world upside down. It's not going to resolve all the issues that you're dragging around with you. It will just say that you have taken that step along the way. The flip side of that is kind of like the yin and yang to a certain degree. Making an impact is an altruistic uh, a pursuit because it makes you feel good. If that's your motivation and, that, and that's your drive, for what makes you want to get out of bed in the morning, do it without reservation and be very clear about your expectations of an outcome and why you're doing it in the first place. So it, it, for both the lanes, it, it's just do it. Don't wait for somebody to tell you it's okay. Just go do it because you will learn something from that process. I mean, look at me. I mean, I've had a lot of success, you know, accomplishment. I, I hate to use the word success but I've accomplished a lot of things 
is basically because I'm not afraid to fail. I often talk about having the courage to fail. As we said earlier about separating your self-worth from the work that you do, there's enormous growth that will, personal growth that will happen if you have the courage to fail. Because all that means is, oh, that didn't work. It's not the end. It just means that it didn't work. And the older you get, you realize that most things in life don't work out. So why make such a big deal out of it? 100%, I appreciate that. No, that's great. You mentioned Oprah, and I want to go back to Oprah for a second because you folks worked on Color Purple. And I was reading one of your pieces, and it talked about the fact that you had a conversation with Oprah. And I'd love to just hear like what that experience was like, because in the, the piece you talked about, something around how she shows up that I think is very interesting. So behind me, you can't see it here. Well, actually, on the, on the wall with all the plaques, there's like a, a long rectangular front picture frame. It's a f portrait of the Oscar nominee's luncheon taken at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills. And, you know, it's a, the, you know all the people were nominated from The Color Purple. And, you know, I mean, it's just like all these incredible people in the thing. So now we segue 25 years later. And, and David Foster had hired me to co-produce an album for one of his artists. David was known as Benefit Boy because he would audition new talent by having them appear on the benefits that he performed at. So the act that we were working with was going to perform at the Carousel Ball, which was Barbara Davis, whose husband owned 20th Century Fox at the time. It was like the, the, it was like the premier social event in Beverly Hills, right? The Carousel Ball. So I decide to say, well, you know, I'm involved with this act. I should go support my clients and, and go hang out, right? So, so I go to this thing and, you know, it's a room full of rich, influential people. I'm sitting in the green room, which is probably about the size of this room that I'm sitting in now. And standing behind me is Sidney Poitier. And standing in front of me is, is Oprah, who was there to give an award to Halle Berry. So I saw her and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I got to pick my spot. And she was rehearsing her remarks to just, and, and when, when she was done rehearsing and she put her hand down and she was looking around, I went up to her and I introduced myself and I said, I have a photo of you and me taken in this very room 25 years ago. And she looked at me stunned and said, get out of town. This, crazy thing about this was her entire being was focused on me and i felt like i was at the at the at the mouth of a fire hose right it was so overwhelming that i couldn't maintain eye contact with her i had to look away it was like you know, it's like, what the hell was that? Right. And it's not, it wasn't, it was, you know, it was innocuous in its intent. It wasn't right. But, but she was just, and then she got very reverential. She realized that the impact that that had had on me. And so we had, you know, we had a, a short little conversation. You know, as, as I recall, she says, have you seen Q? And I said, yeah, I saw him earlier, and and says so I'm I'm you know, told me she told me she was staying at his house, and you know, yeah, you know, but that you know, back to that, using that as an example of the power of presence awareness 
for anyone listening, that's like a, a kind of a, a third party or a, an example of what you can bring to the creative work that you do, right? If you want to make an impact, if you want to get people to respond, that's what they're going to respond to. They're not going to respond to the great, latest, greatest toy. They're not going to respond to, to you know, what you look like or, or sound like. They're going to respond to who you are and what you are sharing with them. That's, well, that's, that's what art is all about. You know, I mean, you think about human connection, music predates language. So humans have been using music, even if it's just a drum in a tribe, to communicate with others. It's part of our DNA. So why not, not use that as, as a wedge or a vehicle to affect positive change, especially today where everybody's, you know, it's, it's like we go, if we jump back a little bit to, to social media. The 20th century was all about filters, right? You had gatekeepers along the way who would, who, would, who would allow you to get into the game or not, right? Whatever their criteria is, that doesn't really matter. But the way that it was structured was gatekeepers. Social media and the internet completely obliterated that to where now it's, a, it's become a horizontal playing field. So, so we, as a culture, we were kind of forced to become our own filters. And as, you know, humans and free will and the seven deadly sins and all the rest of that is, is there are bad actors out there who have used that ignorance and manipulated that inexperience and, in a, uh, you know, a knowledge base for their own ends. An outgrowth of that is... If, if you think about mythology, I'm, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell and the power of myth. Uh, it's a, an amazing book. If, 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 you, if, if, if I encourage everybody to read it, but basically his contention is that the Greeks created gods to create stories that would chill out the population, right? If, if, if the population to generate a sense of certainty in their world about things they don't understand. So as long as Apollo's got it covered that the sun's going to come, and come up in the morning, I don't have to. I can go to sleep and I can sleep soundly because I know Apollo's got it covered. Yeah, it's, it's, no, it's no longer a worry for me. So and so we find ourselves in a period of human history where we have to take back that power, the bad actors, and, and instill faith, at least in my opinion, in the fact that story is a way to reach people, art is a way to reach people, to say and an awareness that if we if we are not connected, we won't survive because we're not autonomous, and we'll go down all this you know this political nonsense and all the rest of that, which we that that continues to separate us as as people, whereas if we're connected. Not mechanically speaking, but from from a cognitive, humanistic level, then we have a chance of survival. The time is now to stand up and and to, to make that happen, and it will. Ha in my belief, it's going to happen on a community by community basis. It's not going to come from somebody on high saying, "Oh, everything's okay with the world." 
is because it's going to come from from a groundswell from the grassroots to say i know how to deal with the uncertainty in my life you said you have a six and a three-year-old grandchild let's fast forward 35 40 years they're listening to this podcast what's the message that you give them well i hope you're happy and you're safe you know i mean it is and that, that you've learned something along the way my, my six-year-old granddaughter is she's an artist a year and a half ago she was listening to a piece of music before she went to sleep and five she was probably five years old at the time she knew all the lyrics she sang it in tune and she vocalized the guitar solo and i'm thinking and she draws incessantly and i'm thinking okay i know who this little girl you know the other thing i would say which would be well i hope what you learned from me helped you along Well, Chris, this has been great. I've got two last questions to um, kind of wrap us up here. This has been extremely um, powerful and I think our listeners are going to find it super moving, but also insightful. We do this with every guest. We, it's kind of a fill in the blank, so to speak. So before I became a composer, I wish I would have known that blank. I wish I would have known how impactful my emotional well-being was, that I needed to be a whole person to get the most out of the gift that I have been given. In order to be a great composer, I've learned that the most important skill to work on is being curious, constantly learning, and I wouldn't say tolerant, but appreciative of people's differences because all of that experience becomes grist for the mill for using a, my, one of my parents' phrases, but, but, but it, it becomes fodder for the work that you do because the job of a composer is to interpret their emotions and use music as a language to be able to express that emotional intent. Sometimes it's a release, sometimes it's to guide people. You know, there's varying different ways that, that it can manifest itself. Yeah, stay open, keep learning, be curious, take chances, take risks, fall down, get back up again. Chris, thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate the conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Create like the grades, let's break it down.